0: Hello and welcome to The Boss Podcast, episode 73. I am Kirk Bailey and once again I'm here to bring you the highlight of over 14 years of boss confs. This week we delve into running your sales team with Jeff Schepansky. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org For technical founders and software developers in general, building out the sales aspects of your business can seem like a big, scary, foreign mystery. This is due, in part, to the wide differences in personalities and job functions between sales and software developers, with this implied understanding that salespeople have to be managed and led completely differently than software developers. Jeff believes this is just wrong. In fact, he contends that the techniques employed to manage your software development efforts can even be better applied to sales for a more direct and bigger impact on the revenue and profitability of your company. Jeff was the COO at Stack Overflow until 2018 and was the CTO and founder of Allworks till it was acquired in 2007. So he knows a thing or two about coding, building, developing and leading a team of salespeople. In this talk, he will help to demystify the process of managing the sales team in your company. Happy listening.
1: Um, just to start off with, to make sure this is not going to be too scary for the developers in the audience, including myself, exclusively use VI and NRA for preparing this entire presentation in courier font. Um, not, not entirely true, but we I, I tried a little bit for a few minutes anyway. To see how possible it would be. <laughs> Um, As Mark said, um, I'm Jeff Sapansky, or Tall Jeff, uh, certainly on Stack Overflow, and certainly within the company. A lot of my friends these days seem to call me Tall Jeff as well. I'm actually, as I said already, a developer by training, electrical engineer. I used to do a lot of embedded systems work, uh, embedded C++ programming and real-time operating systems, stuff like that. Um, I actually have a higher rep on Stack Overflow than, I think, almost all the developers in our company, except for just a few that were purposely hired off of page one on Stack Overflow um, into the company. But for those of you who may not know a lot about it, Stack Exchange is the name of the company. Stack Overflow is our best well-known community, a question-and-answer site for programmers. Um, We have now over 100 um, different sites that operate in all kinds of different topics. Um, Anything from, you know, the technical topics that are sort of more core to our audience to more things like um, English language usage, uh, things that are programmer-related, again, tax latex, Android enthusiasts, stuff that gets in a little bit more on the consumer side. And that actually, the other parts of the network are now, at this point, growing much, much faster than Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow at 25 million users or so on the site every month um, is kind of running out of programmers on the planet. Um, so we're actually starting now to go into other languages and picking up these other niches. Um, but in any case, um, the company itself really operates as two different sort of halves. There's the half that's responsible for the free product and services um, of the Q&A site, and that entire half of the company is focused on that and doing in a very Uh, pure community-driven manner, and there's the other half of the company. Sometimes people try to think of it as the dark side of the company, which is what I'm responsible for, which is actually the monetization of the network and figuring out how to turn um, Stack Exchange as a question-and-answer site that's a free service into an actual product business. Um, You know, I normally – you know, don't normally do the the speaking uh, stuff that often. so, in fact, I'm kind of wondering how I got up here in the first place. I actually do have a good sort of theory. I did start a blog recently, but I think it has nothing to do with that, and it's talking about uh, some of these topics I'm going to get into in the slides here. Um, but the best theory that I've come up with so far was that Mark, in thinking about the inaugural event for Business and Software UK here, said, oh, yeah, I need to get JS over at Stack Exchange to do a talk here uh, to draw the crowds. Uh, Wendy thought that meant Jeff Sapansky at Stack Exchange, but he really meant Joel Spolsky. So, sorry for the air. <laughs> I'm the other JS at Stack Exchange, and... Real JS. The real JS. okay, that's right. We can't get Joel to talk here anymore, right? Yeah. Um, in any case, um, with that introduction, um, just a little bit more background on just one part of what we do. There's a couple different businesses that we operate within Stack Exchange. Companies um, company's actually getting pretty large at this point. Um, and what, uh, the background for the majority of this presentation is actually um, around the Careers 2.0 businesses, which is how we monetize Stack Overflow, which is really developer hiring Uh, Any company that employs developers, if you're looking to hire developers, basically we're trying to make this the de facto place that you come with 25 million people using the site every month. So the size of this team, and this is a lot of the work in this presentation, is based off of stuff we've developed over the last several years. Um, 70 sales reps across nine teams now, worldwide, in these three different offices. Uh, We have six different sales managers, two sales executives, and I'm not including myself in that count, um, that are responsible to the team. One of them is here today somewhere, Dimitar and a marketing team that makes up another six people worldwide. And this is all just within the careers business. Stack Exchange now is about 150 people, 160 going on. So enough on the background. Uh, what is the presentation really about? What do we mean by the developer's guide? So I've actually done a, a few startups myself, um, or at least built a couple of different companies. Um, so I get involved with some entrepreneurs early stage, some of the different investors in different companies in the portfolio bring me in to talk to different people or give advice at different places. And I've actually started over the last couple years notice a very common theme of a lot of way companies get started, and this is evolving a little bit with a lot of the good shared information that comes out of conferences like this. But basically this, the common startup plan for a lot of different companies is great idea and really great idea in many cases. You see a lot of really good stuff out there. Um, the technical founder, uh, co-founders get together and at some level they can actually really sell and sell effectively. They go out and they raise money and they start building a great product. But this sales thing is always kind of a second level thinking that at some point, even if there's a co-founder, they bring in and say, hey, we need somebody to do sales, let's complement the team with somebody that specializes in sales. There's still this distinction, as Mark was alluding to before, between building a great product and scaling a great sales operations team. And so it's kind of this idea that, hey, we need sales at some point in the, uh, the evolution of that product, and then profit will result, and everybody's happy. The problem is, this is what I actually usually see happens somewhere along the way which is that they go through the steps that I alluded to, the cash is in the bank, and you start iterating, hire a VP of sales or have the one you got, struggle for 12 to 18 months, fire that people, fire those people, this is not working, uh, get a new VP of sales and keep doing this until the cash runs out. Um, I keep my fingers crossed usually that we're kind of earlier up in the flow chart here when I uh, see these different companies. Um, Obviously you wanna try to avoid this in your own company. Um, So really this whole presentation is about making sure this doesn't happen. Um, now, the one thing here um, to think about, and there's, this is where the state-of-the-art I think is moving forward nicely, is that when we talk about, you know, minimum viable product concepts and product market fit, there's all this great stuff going on around sort of connecting your customers or your potential customer base to your product and your product evolution. The downside to all of this is that it's essentially starting to advocate a thinking, which is like, what's the best way to increase sales? Add more features. And, Um, I'm gonna actually argue not against adding more features. because It's obviously important But I think you got to think of this as a completely separable set of problems that are trying to be solved simultaneously And actually from a scientific standpoint as you're building a business You want to actually think about how you can run these as you know Multiple operating petri dishes in different areas of your company all at once and so the rest of the presentation now is going to talk about You know in fact um, Joel I think uh, Joel Spolsky wrote a post either a blog post. I can't remember now or maybe it was an Inc magazine article Um, about the fact that with at Fog Creek with their Fog Bugs product that the single best way that they ever increased sales in their product was to add more features to it. And I think it's an important idea. It's an important concept. It's not wrong. It's just that it also says a lot about their sales team, right? That somehow the sales team couldn't go out and sell more than people putting features in the product. So again, what I'm really going to talk about here is, you know, there's sort of a fallacy there I think that adding features to your product is more about expanding the opportunity of who you're selling to than it is about increasing the rate of penetration into a specific target audience that you're already addressing. And so what we're really going to be talking about here in this presentation then is all the things that's not about adding the features, or at least how it interacts with features adding and how to think about the problem, as separable scientific pieces, if you will. Um, Leading to this conclusion then that if you think about the great companies out there, um, Microsoft, uh, the ones being mentioned today, Salesforce, it comes up a lot. Uh, Oracle, you know, all the 800-pound gorillas in all the industries. Does anybody really think, Apple might be the only sort of exception there, uh, but even that's going away, is that does anybody really think that they actually build the greatest products, right? They don't, but these are obviously the greatest businesses. And if you really break them down and look at them about what they're doing, they get phenomenally good at all the elements of sales execution, is what they really are doing. Their product is sort of, eh, so-so. You know, it's good enough, or there's a network effect, or there's some kind of thing that gives them the vested interest. But it's really the multiplier in this is the way, the only way you can build the great businesses. Um, I have a very personal story on this myself, actually, which is one of the companies, uh, be- the company I was involved in, uh, co-founder and CTO of before going to Stack Exchange, uh, Allworks fantastic product um, Everybody thinks their own product is great, right? My baby is always pretty that kind of thing. No, you know Somebody else's baby is always ugly. You know, we built it what I think was a great product in the industry But it really comes down to me in the in the case of our exit which was successful um, But it was a 25 million dollar acquisition. that was more of an aqua hire and a, you know uh, Acquiring the technology of the business rather than actually, you know operate um, excuse me Uh, acquiring the operating company itself, which could have been a $200 million business or a billion-dollar business when Google buys out at that stage rather than um, these earlier stage things. So again, this whole thing is just, I'm trying to really encourage you to kind of think about the business differently and realize that even though we kind of think as developers and salespeople and different things, the management team of the company has to think of this whole thing as one problem, that all of these things are equally important to each other. And I would kind of actually push in the argument, speaking as a developer, The sales stuff's actually more important and actually more critical to your success. Um, You can do a lot with selling, it, you know, the Cathy Sierra kind of stuff and getting your users and making them more awesome, all really good stuff. But you will never be a $500 million company unless you figure out how to do what LinkedIn, Oracle, Microsoft, um, those kind of companies are all out there doing. So okay, so let's start uh, breaking this down into pieces and making uh, what we're doing here kind of sort of a practical approach. I kind of like to think about businesses in three sort of stages of building out the sales organization Um, I'll talk about these mostly as independent pieces although I think they definitely overlap in time as I'm trying to show here in the diagram Um, but we'll definitely treat it sort of like almost like a phase gate kind of thinking of what you're trying to accomplish from a um, you know a, a, a goal standpoint and what's the foundation that you're trying to build as you go through each one of these different phases So first, the essence of phase one is this is really what, you know, minimum viable product stuff is basically about. But it's really important from a sales perspective, because what you're trying to do is pr- uh, proving that the market exists for what your product and the people are going to actually pay money for it. Um, with the, the goal, then, of uh, having several paid customers who are getting value out of the product. Now, this is, again, lifted directly from min- minimum viable product kind of stuff but it has extremely important sales implications, I think, if you really think about what's actually going on here. And where we're going to kind of go with this, jumping ahead a little bit, is that this is not about professional sales tactics in phase one yet. Um, And it's because of this. Your product actually really does suck at this level. Totally stinks. Um, People don't really want to buy it for its features with maybe except one small, you know, niche kind of thing around um, some kind of value that they get out of it. Um, What it's really about is that customers are buying into your vision more than they are buying your product. And this is extremely important from a sales perspective, I think, because selling on features and benefits and things that salespeople are really good at is not why people are actually buying your product. They're trying to jump on the star of the same exact thing that the VCs heard when they think about this great, um, you know, market-shifting idea that's out there. Again, it's the essence of the early adopters and exactly, um, you know, the types of things that the founders are talking about. So what does that really mean? Have the founders selling. No salespeople yet. You do not want professional salespeople at this stage. You definitely don't want professional sales management at this stage, I'll argue. doesn't mean you shouldn't be thinking about it. doesn't mean you shouldn't be learning about it, of course. But it's just not what that type of um, people are actually good at. You know, it's all about the reproducible processes, and that's what we're going to get into in the later phases. But at this stage, basically, you, you know, you want the founders outselling the visions of the company and, uh, in a sense, proving the whole market value fit to build this foundation that you then later can use for the professional salespeople to start coming onto the scene. Uh, Talking too fast, I think. (laughs) Um, So what are the best practices here? We kind of mentioned these already. There's the lean startup concepts, getting the minimum viable product, the founder selling of the vision. This is really important. and in a sense, what I think you want to think of this as doing is having the founders going out and telling the stories around why the company was founded and why the product is going to be great, and then listening to what customers are saying back to them. And what you're starting to do is create the foundations of the stories and the examples and scenarios that you're going to be start teaching to salespeople once you start bringing them on board. And you're essentially testing your price point. You're testing the product market fit. And you're trying to prove that there's actually people willing to consume the product. Because from a scientific standpoint, you want to know when you start to bring salespeople in, are the salespeople not selling because they suck, or are people not buying because your product sucks? And that's the, the distinction you're trying to create between these two different things, is that sort of petri dishes that are going along. I'll actually talk about it in a few more minutes here. Um, trying to think of what else on that one, that's about right. Um, so this kind of leads us into phase two. Which I call understanding your pitch. And I was starting to allude to this already. Um, but as we look at thinking about understanding your pitch, this is before we're going to do any scaling. Notice I haven't said anything about sales management or even salespeople quite yet until you have these sort of foundations in place, right? You want to see that you have a product that's definitely proving useful in the marketplace. And it doesn't, some of the stinkiness out of it that we alluded to before is starting to go away. But the reality is your product's still going to always suck. And that's an important element to think about even in phase two. Um, and you know, I would think that the product development parallel to this um, is really kind of in the phase where you're coming out of beta phases and things like that. And you actually sort of have maybe the 1.0 of the product. Certainly, you have multiple paying customers, and you know they've paid real money for the product, um, not giving away free things anymore. Certainly, if you did that even at the beginning, which I think you should avoid. Um, and you also want to have this idea that you understand who your addressable market is based on who started consuming the product already. The list of your possible future customers. This is obviously going to be the prospecting list and techniques that you're feeding to the salespeople when you start to get them involved and on board. And certainly, some sort of sense of your workable price point. The goal here at the end of this phase two is to have multiple sales reps selling your product successfully on their own. And I'm going to stress every element of those words in there, which is more than one of them, um, end to end on their own, and in a sense, without assistance. And this is the experiment from, built on the foundation of what we proved essentially in phase one, which is that we have something people want to buy, and now I want to be able to figure out how to teach it to people that are not the founders and are not pitching the vision, but they're starting to transition from the phase of um, customers buying into the vision and customers actually starting to really buy the product or the solution that you're selling. Who are these people? This is kind of important, and this will start alluding to some of the things that I think are a little bit different about how I'm sort of advocating to think about the process going forward. But I'm going to jump ahead too far yet. Um, but in these early phases, again, we're not talking about sales management here yet. This is just the first people after you have the sort of basic minimum viable product element in place um, for the uh, you know, shipping betas and version 1.0 of the product. Um, you're looking for salespeople out there who this is not their first sales job before. And the parallel draw here from a software development perspective is the early developers that you're hiring on your team right so if we want to kind of back up a little bit and think about how you think about your technical team um, when you start doing the foundation stuff right if you don't get a couple technical founders together and say hey let's go out hire a cto and a vp of engineering to help us out with this And start having them build the product for us Um, those are the companies that don't get invested in by the way (laughs) it's usually the business MBA type people who say they want to go do exactly that because there's something very unique in that founding team the vision the insight and the actual ability to go out and execute and build and so you don't start hiring really junior developers really for the most part at the beginning either you might go and find a couple critical dev hires of some really experienced but open-minded people and I think you guys will know from software development that actually too much experience in certain things, especially if they're from the industry, actually kind of counts against them. And I'll make the same exact argument for the salespeople, right? So you, you want these kind of earlier in their career salespeople who are smart and aggressive and they want to go make good money, they believe in your vision to some level, and um, they're consciously competent about the process that they're executing. So again, it's not their first sales job. You don't want to have the risk of them like never having coded before, and again, I keep drawing the parallels there. Um, if you think about the ideal role model of these early hires you want to do for your software developers, this is exactly who you want to hire for your early uh, sales developers, if you will. Um, and the reasons here, I got them on the slide already, but avoiding the experience reps comes into these preconceived notions and sort of the prima donna effects. And we, again, we know these in the developer sense of those type of developers that are just extremely caustic to teams. And the sales um, parallels are directly there as well. Um, and it was really quite a eureka moment for me, somewhere probably in the first six to eight months of the job at Stack Exchange after starting to think about this in a, you know, a more structured sense, that the, you know, the light bulb really went on as you start realizing you know, people are people in a sense. The management techniques are very similar. And not only that, I'm going to make this argument a little bit more further into the presentation, is that I think sales is actually evolving in a way that's converging towards the software development thinking, which is actually even more interesting. Um, and in fact, some of the things that are being done in sales or innovations in sales and SaaS companies recently. I think are broken actually in similar ways to uh, how software development used to be broken and we're starting to learn how to fix uh, which is exciting at least to me anyway (laughs) Um, so those are the sales reps Um, what goes wrong in phase two this is the most classic one right here I can close customers myself without any problem but the reps I've hired can't close the deals on their own this repeats itself an amazing amount uh, to me Um, and The founder inclination, much like the baby analogy, I think that my baby is never ugly, uh, my product is never ugly. um, My salespeople suck when they see this. What am I doing wrong? How am I hiring these people wrong? And the answer almost always is the founders are doing something wrong when this is happening. And what it's essentially telling you, based on the way we built this theory so far, is that the founders are not figuring out how to convert what they know to be the division and communicating to salespeople in a way that can actually be articulated. In other words, you know, by salespeople who are not um, you know, believing in the vision necessarily right from the very, the get-go. And um, there's actually kind of a funny story that comes to mind around this, uh, or at least it, c- it comes co- close to home, you know, when we think about uh, expanding the careers business, uh, building out into some major customers, you know, get some major brands, and won't mention names of any Fortune 500 type companies, um, but, you know, we're having trouble getting them to adopt the Stack Overflow Career Service for whatever reason. And we've got some really good salespeople cracking along on it, can't figure it out. Sort of the last uh string we pull is to say, OK, it's time to send in Spolsky, go do a talk to the developers there and figure out how to get a meeting with the HR people. And uh, Joel goes off to these companies and does a visit and does a great talk and meets with the HR people. And he comes back, kind of time after time again in the times that he's done this, and he's like, I don't understand why this account was hard to break into. I, I got in there. They're, they wouldn't let me leave the room without giving us money. And the reason is, it's like, OK, Joel, wait a minute here. First of all, we only send you in on the really hard ones. You've got to appreciate that, first of all. Um, In other words there's something interesting going on here that's not so obvious and then the next part of it is that you know you have like 165 iq that's a different part of it (laughs) and even though he claims not to be a great salesperson, he really is but obviously what joel's going in and doing is he's selling the vision of the company he's a walking personification of everything we you know sleep eat and breathe about every day and so there's just no better person to go out and pitch that vision in front of some boardroom or senior people in the company the trick is is figuring out how to get that from his mind and our minds that talk about it as sort of a management team or the founder's level and the, uh, you know, VP of engineering and CTO and all these people that really know and understand the vision is translating and communicating in a way that customers at scale understand and also even more importantly, initially, is the salespeople that you're hiring understand um, and can communicate it effectively. Okay. So another phase a common problem that runs into in phase two, sort of a pop quiz kind of thing. And I maybe hinted a little bit at this earlier in the presentation, so I'll give you that. But the pop quiz essentially is when you want to try to understand how if you're in that loop that I talked about before and struggling to get sales traction in the company, do you go out and survey your customers that bought the product and understand what they want to like about it better, or do you go and talk to people that haven't bought your product and figure out how to d- what you need to do to get them to buy more? Anybody want to take a guess at that? <laughs> no? Okay, so. The answer is always, in my opinion, you need to talk to the people that are buying your product. It is absolutely wrong to talk to the people that are not buying your product. And the reason is, is it gets back to this fallacy about product expansion. You're expanding the market of who you're attacking by talking to people that aren't buying. In other words, the people that bought, there's a self-selecting thing going on that's actually extremely important, which means they either bought into the vision or they bought into some features of the product you already have. If you're trying to ex- – you don't want to go wide, um, or at least – you can't singularly go wide with your product before going deep into a particular segment. Nobody wants to get, you know, it's the fallacy of, hey, if we get 1% of the $100 billion market, we'll have a huge company. It's like, no, nobody wants, you know, 1% of a $100 billion market or $100 million market. You want 98% of, you know, the million-dollar market, and then you want to start adding more of those on. And so when you're building your sales teams out, when you think about your sales rep coming to you and saying this, I can't close it without features, you're sort of, like, messing with the Petri dishes, right? You're putting stuff in there that's messing with the stew of it, to keep going with the metaphors, Um, and you know, you're not really solving for what you want to solve for, which is getting them to be able to communicate more effectively to the existing target market. And so you just need to break that loop and think about the different best practices here with, with phase two is what you're trying to do. And this get, that leads right into your product will always suck. You can never use as an excuse, I can't sell this because of whatever. It might be a hint that you hired some of the wrong salespeople if they're really sort of giving up and saying, you know, no one's buying it because it doesn't have XYZ that I heard on the phone yesterday. Um, but really, I think for the most part, it just gets into this idea that you're not keeping the two different independent arms separated um, in these experiments, and you need to keep focusing on those as separable problems in a unified, concerted manner. Um, Helping with the petri dishes analogy is the three sales reps as fast as possible, I think, is extremely important in phase two because you do want to know for sure that if, you know, two people are selling and one's not or one person's selling and two not, getting those guys, uh, people on the team working together, talking with each other, sharing best practices, and potentially understanding whether there was bad hiring decisions made in there. Um, If you only have one data point, obviously, it's hard to know what it means. And you you really want to maintain that sort of independence there. The reason that sales managers are not needed or important here is you want a really tight feedback loop here in phase two. Because you're doing these experiments and you've got to be figuring out how to communicate the founding teams thinking and the early vision kind of stuff into languages that customers and the sales reps understand and the faster the tighter those loops can be the better and this all applies directly to the sales development you know um, you know uh, lean startup and minimum viable product development kinds of things and any of the agile processes that's what you're really doing here is trying to um, you know maintain that sort of scientific integrity if you will of the whole process Uh, aggressive compensation plan too i think is really important not to skip over that one Um, there's no reason not to be paying them as much as you can possibly afford in the early days you want everybody to be making money in a sense um, and making sure that people are well aligned and driving towards the same thing okay we went through that pretty quick actually Um, phase three this is where it gets really interesting and a lot harder i think in a lot of ways and this is where i think some of the evolution of Um, you know the way sales is evolving um, and what I alluded to earlier about the parallels to software development become really important okay so the entry foundations here for phase three what does it really mean to kind of start graduating into phase three well obviously the goal from phase two was one of them multiple um, self-sufficient reps closing deals Happy reps, basically, on the team making good money. You don't want to start hiring more people if they're cranky and um, are not selling well or can't make a lot of money. Um, These things that Tim talked about earlier in his conversation, um, people talking about your product, things like these, these are all things that it's not about you going out and saying we're awesome or our product is awesome. Getting other people to say that you're awesome is obviously a part of it. But as a foundation, um, you're starting to build essentially the marketing tools, if you will, into the sales process and the things that are starting to becoming the more reproducible things here that you're going to start leveraging into uh, phase three here. Uh, Lots of paying customers, definitely repeat business. This can't be just the betas and the the alphas and things like that. You need to have whatever's big in your market or or measurable in your market, you know, is it tens of units or hundreds of units, that's going to vary um, or maybe even thousands of customers depending on the scale of the business. Um, The parallel here in software development, I think, is when you're actually in a mode where you're starting to have, um, you know, certainly multiple developers in the team, probably some sort of sub-teams and subsystems scaling it out, you know, half a dozen, dozen people. From a sales perspective side of things, you're getting beyond the three to five. Um, You're basically starting to get overloaded, um, keeping up with this sort of effective budding sales team that you have. That's really what you're looking for in there from that perspective. The phase three goal is jetting to your vacation home in Aspen, Colorado. (laughs) Um, It really is. I mean, this is getting back to the $500 million company, the billion-dollar company, the really successful businesses. This is where you want phase three to end. So in a sense, it probably never ends, or at least you're continually trying to grow on the business further. The problem with this goal um, is that it's not super actionable. right? So what are we really trying to do? Uh, What we're trying to do at phase three is have predictable revenue that is scaling and again i want to stress kind of every word in there which is about this idea that you're trying to build a reproducible process um, in a predictable manner the parallel to software development here is good process stability relative to scheduling right so if you have certain amount of features you want to do you need to start coordinating this with marketing have product launch windows trade shows things like that the company's not going to be super successful unless you get in most cases um, you know some level of predictability and robustness in the product um, relative to your software development practices and that um, you know if you say you're gonna ship it in three months it doesn't take 12 um, although that's not uncommon um, for that to happen uh, beyond people's control um, but it's something I spent a huge percentage of my career figuring out how to avoid and always this sort of frustration that you know when you put people in charge of things and they can't say you can give predictable outcomes I, don't quite know what I'm actually paying you to do or what I'm getting paid to do if we're not trying to stabilize things and make it into a predictable thing. In other words, the essence of engineering and innovation is actually moving those things forward and having understandable processes that are predictable. So clearly, for the sales side of things here, this is your sort of core goal that you're you're driving to. And this is all about the precision and how you operate and things like that. Concepts here. Um, Here's a really interesting book. They have nothing to do with the book uh, other than have read it. Uh, a few times, actually. Um, This is definitely a must-read book when you think about the business, and actually at any stage. There's actually kind of a funny parallel in the picture relative to the three phases I outlined. Um, Not exactly the same, although there might be a little bit of similarity, certainly in the phase, the C phase here, where you're starting to scale the organization. Um, They talk about a really interesting thing here. Aaron Ross, just for a little bit more background, if you may or may not be familiar with the book, um, Aaron Ross is the guy at Salesforce that basically was their lead gen team doing email stuff. I forget the exact background of the whole story. But, you know, he could probably be credited with um, certainly the earlier, if not later, successes of salesforce.com becoming a multi-billion dollar company. Um, And this book is all about how to think about essentially building a sales machine. Um, I think it's a great book. I am strongly recommending reading it. I think there's a lot of really interesting things in it. But it actually kind of takes things too far or maybe not too far enough or I don't know how to think about this part of it. Um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit about what I think there's a lot broken in this book. And maybe I'll just start off by teasing the idea of, like, salesforce.com, you know, they built a great business. But, and how many people here are actually familiar, obviously, with using or, or have in-house, probably, Salesforce for their CRMs, right? Most people, right? Everybody uses them. How many people in this room actually like doing business with this company? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not a single hand. I love this. So um, one of my missions, future missions in life is to go destroy that company and build a much better product and solution. Um, in other words, Yeah, (laughs) Uh, so anyway, uh, predictable revenue. Uh, I'm jumping ahead by getting into it, but what's really important here is this whole idea they talk about the scalability and how to think about it. And I really can't do it justice um, quite here. It's a really kind of a different thing, but they're talking about a very important element of this, which I'm kind of ignoring in my presentation here, just mostly in the interest of time, which is the whole lead gen marketing, what are you doing to supply your sales team with things that um, is going to keep them productive essentially going forward. Where the book goes too far and again i'm jumping ahead a little bit but as they somehow think of this as a specialization and they have this pipeline that they're putting everything through like a nice little manufacturing line and it's good and scientific and it feels great from an engineering perspective and you're reading it, and you're like oh wow and then when you actually do business with salesforce you're like oh this really sucks right and it has to do with this idea that they're actually putting you down a pipeline as a customer and they got people that are great at prospecting they got people that are great at you know, objection handling. And then insult to injury is once you build a relationship with somebody that actually helps you figure out to solve your problem, they say, let me introduce you to Charlie that you've never talked to before and now that you're actually a customer and spent money. And it gets into all the Kathy stuff about the context and the expectations being set. It just all goes out the window. And it's even worse at Salesforce. I'm sorry for really picking on them, especially if anybody here is from Salesforce. <laughs> um, I would fire you guys tomorrow if I had a better solution. So maybe that'll inspire somebody. <laughs> um, the, uh, the thing with them is, yeah, they they hand it off, and then even once you're a customer, they have people that are like renewal specialists separated from people that are actually the account rep that you're talking to. And I have no idea even why they do that, other than this whole idea about they're trying to optimize something behind the scenes. And this is just where I think they go too far or not far enough in terms of their thinking around this. And actually, what the rest of the presentation now is going to kind of do is start focusing in on how you actually solve this problem um, in a better way, I think. But again, I do not want to discredit this book to any significant extent, because I think it's really important thinking um maybe i'll team up with aaron or something and figure out a better way to put this together anyway um and this kind of leads into some more of the bad news around sales and i think maybe this is part of the reason maybe the book's just dated is another way of thinking about it that it was a good way to doing it but the state of the art in sales i think is moving forward or the nature of it's changing and this just has to do with the massive um you know penetration of the internet into everything that we're doing in life and sales is no different you know the sales is evolving from this thing i think which is sort of controlled dissemination of information to the way the company decides to do it and will let you become a customer by letting you or manipulate you into becoming a customer into more like a sales process where you want people jumping in the boat and moving down the stream with your customers, educating them about solutions, being an expert or a conduit to adopting the products, not so much about manipulation. And so the, the skill sets and like the idea that salespeople should be reading from scripts or going through process pipelines is wrong. And this is wrong in the exact same way that software development started I think, which is you had architects and you had coders and there was the marketing people and the requirement analysis people. It was all broken into these separate subdivisions. But what it turned into is the products start getting more complicated is that nobody could manage any of it and that the standard management techniques didn't apply in this process. And so it really started forcing us as software developers as that sort of evolving, complexity was going up, um, information was coming, you know, freer and uh, more readily available. Um, It all just started to break down. And we start over the last 20 years or so in software development, we kind of came up with some ways to think about this differently and solve the problems differently. And I actually credit uh, Joel uh, quite a bit in writing a lot about how, like, Microsoft and, um, you know, different companies at that sort of stage in the cycle of software development started refining these ideas moving forward and turning it into, you know, other types of more, um, you know, uh, end-to-end processes solved by the autonomous uh, leaf nodes, if you will. And that's really alluding to where um, this presentation is kind of going. Um, But, you know, so if you look at this bad news stuff here, classic management methods, I think, are failing in sales. Expertise doesn't equal experience anymore. You can go hire a VP of sales that's very experienced from Oracle. He's not going to help my business at all. Or from the careers context, Monster.com, we don't hire anybody from Monster.com or CareerBuilder or any of these places. None of our salespeople, I don't think, maybe one or two, have even ever come out of the industry. Um, And there's actually real specific reasons for that. Maybe it's a self-selecting thing at some level. But the, the, the problem we're trying to solve, if you're innovating with your product, you don't want to sell it the same as everybody else is selling it, right? And actually, I think Tim was alluding to that and some of the other presentations even talked about it. If it's, once it becomes everybody doing it, it's no longer a productive thing. And that's what I think is going to get Salesforce in the end, is that people are going to really start coming up with a better solution that is also being sold better, and they're going to lose rapidly once that actually happens. Um, but the, good, the bad news is not necessarily bad news, as I've already sort of jumped ahead here. Um, if you think of this as exactly the evolution that software development went through. Hmm. So what kind of could this actually mean? And this is sort of a thought-provoking process I had uh, several years ago, and then not so impractical. Instead of looking for VPs of engineering and specialists of sa- or VP of sales, um, and specialists in sales in our company, what if we just hired another VP of engineering and had them tack the sales problem? Kind of a crazy idea at some level, but as you probably already guessed, Joel Spolsky did this. This is how I got here, or at least at Stack Exchange. Um, and it does lead to some interesting things. The problem is is maybe you would be wondering, how does that really help? In other words, hiring a VP of engineering or CTO as co-founders or people starting companies or businesses understand, um, not easy to find either, right? It's just as a rare bird. Um, so maybe the first level that it sort of helps at is that um you can kind of double the talent pool so there's the prospective vp of sales that will kind of do this and think about it in the right kinds of ways or your sales managers i think there's the other pool out there of people who can say hey maybe we can go find a vp of engineering that's just going to look at this as another data driven problem like any other software project you would have built it's going to go out and build a sales team and read aaron's book and maybe read uh, uh me and dimitar's uh, blog or something like that that talks about some of these ideas how you can draw parallels here and um those are definitely some of the reasons but i think the more important reason that it actually really just helps is that I'm making a very strong argument here that everything you know about software development and sales management run in direct parallels and that the two things are actually converging together over time because of the way sales is changing, because of what we already know about software development, different agile processes, agile thinking. Which means then, now if we think about this, instead of our presentation being called the developer's guide to sales teams, I think we can kind of flip it around and say how would a developer run a sales team? And that's exactly what we've been essentially attempting to do at careers and stack overflow now for the last four years Um, of course to actually do this we do need to talk about and i alluded this that software development track record is not the greatest thing in the world even today as things are evolving Um, but it is again really interesting to start drawing the parallels to what you may already know or have learned from hard knocks and what was the presentation earlier about being rubbish continually i would spend a lot of years as a rubbish cto and vp of engineering Um, Before coming not so rubbish Um, same thing on the sales side and trying to reapply some of these things in the thinking Um, So let's just kind of break it down. What do we think about in terms of successful software development strategies? The first one smart and gets things done. This is actually a picture of Joel's book. I don't make money off of this either Um, But it is a really great book. It's really fun to read I'm guessing a lot of people are probably familiar with it. It's adapted from Joel's blog but really the point of what's getting here is that when you think about good software developers, what makes a really good software development is somebody that's empowered and autonomous to do the task at hand. You're not asking them to write certain lines of code or, you know, in some you know, uh, you know, one page of VI to go do this. You're looking for somebody that says, hey, here's sort of a business problem, um, or at least some sort of subsystem that's been defining, go off and do that. Um, I'm going to argue the same thing for salespeople, basically. There's another key element in software development. If you really want to stabilize software development, you have to recognize that you can't just look at the output. Oh, is the schedule ahead or behind? Did we make it? Did we not make it, right? As engineering managers, as engineering team leads, CTOs, when you got to look at the entire problem, there's not only the addressable market that you're looking at, but there's all these different sort of skills that each one of the developers or the team as a whole must be pretty sophisticated at to actually pull off a predictable software development schedule. You know, there's the requirements analysis and requires development, requirements development, um, task estimation, pro- project management, um, all the ongoing maintenance and deployment things, obviously the code construction itself and understanding the languages and all these things. And it's kind of funny when you usually stop, you know, as a developer, we kind of internalize all this stuff and don't really think about it broken down like this. But even a, you know, a relatively junior developer already knows a whole bunch of things that are a bunch of different several skills that are actually really important for them to be productive software developers. It's kind of why they're hard to find. Um, and so um, sales, same exact thing, Paul Kenny, um, something he taught me actually here really well is that you know, when you think about sales you just can't look at obviously your sales team sales results and start saying you know, in a sense everything is a closing problem, right? If you're not generating enough revenue in the end it all comes down to we're not selling enough. So what does that really mean in a useful kind of way? Well in sales development there's exactly the same thing going on as you do in software development which is there's a whole bunch of different separable skills. And this is where the predictable revenue book goes too far they're going to argue that you need people to specialize in each one of these things and you're basically going to build a pipeline that chains them all together and you're going to expose your customer to that pipeline and that's essentially what the book's all about i think it does a great job in the first like step or two of this and that's the part of the book that's really useful where it goes too far is to assume that that's actually a business process and what i actually think of it is just a set of skills you're trying to instill in a team of people and in the same way you would not take your you know your uh, people that know how to debug and people that know how to write code and people that know how to um, you know uh, run a compiler or a make script you're not going to separate those into separate skills i'm um, in there t- certainly not to that degree but that's essentially what a lot of companies are doing today with their sales teams and i think it used to work because if you thought of read this script do this thing smart marketing and sales people at headquarters handing off sort of canned demos and scripts and presentations and people just went around and talked all of it off the script, it actually kind of worked. In the same way that it kind of worked in software development in the early days, when you had relatively unsophisticated systems by today's standards, and you just said, this is what we needed to do. Here's the five different steps and break it down in sort of a waterfall kind of way. Those things collapse when it gets more of a dynamic problem. And this is where agile and the more modern processes come into play, and this is the reason that I'm arguing that this is exactly what you want to be doing with your sales teams. Um, another really important in here, in terms of stabilizing a team, team morale and the cadence aspect. This is one of the things. Maybe about five or seven years ago, as I started getting more advanced in my years and career relative to um, running larger development teams, is really actually understanding that, in addition to all the skills pieces, that the morale aspect, which maybe is somewhat intuitive, but the cadence aspect and separating the, separating this out is actually the most important thing you can do to stabilize your software teams. And this has a direct parallel in sales which is your revenue forecasting ability in a sense and driving to forecasts and creating predictability on your sales teams through this notion that there's this underlying thing always going on that's completely separable from everything else that's what's the pace that people are going and doing things at. How do you keep that consistent and smooth? And so if you start thinking about that as a separable steady output continuous process, you start getting insights into how that's separating out from the rest of the skills and then even the morale aspects that sort of obviously contribute to that. So in this slide here, I kind of lump them together into one thing. I think there are two different things. On the morale side, this is actually where you can learn a lot from the sales team and the motivations, and I think the techniques here are evolving a little bit. But if you're going to read sales books um, or get experienced salespeople on your team, understanding the psychology and the dynamics behind morale and, to some extent, cadence is actually the most valuable thing you can bring in. And in fact, on the software development side, I feel like I've learned a lot about even more insights into the software development side of things, just understanding exactly how the sales teams um, do exactly the same thing. What do you mean by cadence? Okay, cadence. Um, Basically the rate or the clip that the team is moving, right? So like what is it that um, in the software developer sense, you know, at what rate are your features coming out, right? It's really bad and you kind of get a sense why from a business perspective if there's sort of fits and starts or unpredictability and when things are going to come out, right? You want the features um, across some sort of a roadmap essentially coming out in a pretty consistent, timely manner going forward. Um, On the sales team, the revenue is the obvious output, right? You want sort of continuous acquisition of customers and smooth growth um, relative to onboarding people and keeping the thing going and you, you know it's the death marches things too I think that's on the slide here right? yeah the death march kind of thing right in software you don't want this huge push because everybody some massive trade show release and then everybody stops for three months right it's just really bad it's not efficient in any way in there and maybe in the end actually now that you kind of asked it that way maybe think about it a little bit differently is efficiency is ultimately what you're really looking for in there right a continuous steady process is way more efficient than one that moves and fits and starts and so this idea of separating out cadence here is actually really important I think um so, translating this all into sales, uh, the sales rep ro- role in phase three, the good news is it's exactly like the phase two rep, I think. You're hiring for the same smart and gets things done mentality. Um, but you can start to loosen the constraints up a little bit. And this is, again, just like your dev teams, you know, the experience and latitude that you have in your hiring as the team grows can expand because you have more infrastructure to support sort of the more dy- dynamic things. And so you can start to... Um, I'm not saying hire you know people that are not as smart later on in the cycle but I think you know experience level is probably the biggest thing your ability to train them and take them from knowing less to knowing more either about sales itself or you know certainly your product and the sophistication in selling you can definitely move things forward in their career This is also really good for the advancement side of things make sure there's career paths for these people too um, within the organization um, in the elements here, translating everything I was talking about in the software over to the sales rep side, it's this idea that each one of our reps is end to end ownership of a business. They own the entire life cycle from figuring out which accounts they want to call on, uh, putting together their forecasts. We have no scripts, no quotas. Um, it's all about shared best practices and a support of an infrastructure system that lets them each run their own, essentially independent businesses. And I th- think there's a direct parallel again to the coding side of things, which is that, You know, you want your coders enabled with the best tools. It's all the stuff that Joel's written about and Spartan Gets Things Done talks about in the book, which is we don't ever think twice about, you know, getting the right tools in front of these people. On the development side, you got to do the exact same thing on the sales side. There's no second class people here, there's no difference in thinking. It's all exactly the same mentality about enabling the leaf nodes to be really productive and, you know, all the things again, that Kathy was starting to talk about, you get these intrinsic motivations start coming out when you start taking the shackles off of people and letting them do great things. And in fact, most of the stuff that we do in our business that I think of some of the best ideas we come up with, it wasn't me or Joel or anybody else in the company coming up with these ideas. It's some sales rep you hired. It's like two years out of school. It's been selling for a year. Um, They have some really great insights, and you got to figure out how to funnel that stuff up. No different than some of the best coding ideas and new algorithms and stuff come from um, all the young staffers that you're kind of hiring into the organization and it's this really bottom-up organic way of thinking about it that for some reason people haven't really fully applied to sales yet and i don't quite understand why and that's really the the argument that I'm making here the surrounding enablers for this so what does that infrastructure mean for the team leads um, and the uh, sales managers first we'll do the sales manager one these are the people in the organization that are the line managers of the sales reps um, they're the ones they essentially report to The refinement here, I think, of what you would think of as traditional sales manager in our process is that um, we're separating that cadence piece out that we talked about and separating that as a separable thing from the skills development. So the primary focus of the sales manager in our organizations is really the skills development piece of it, getting them to be good at every one of the stages in the pipeline and thinking about a longer, lower-pass filter on performance than let's get through this month um, or this week or however you break it down, quarter maybe, depending on the business, um, with this longer-term horizon. And this role will specialize as you grow. There's sort of operationally focused sales management and, you know, the deal flow and contracts and the legal kind of stuff that you need to support the sales team. And then there's the skills development. Sometimes people call these trainers. Um, We've defined very specifically the sales management role. And again, the direct parallel to this is the engineering manager, at least what I think of as the engineering manager of the person that's, you know, they're not in the day-to-day, they're not the team dev lead that's putting the subsystem out the door and making sure that that gets shipped and done right. It's the person that's looking at the longer-term resourcing issues, hiring people onto the team, expanding the team. Um, What are the longer-term requirements definitions in the engineering sense? That kind of carries over the sales um, into the sales manager role. Um, Team lead, which I already alluded to here. Um, Again, this is all about the cadence and the morale of the team. They're the ones that are actually in charge of the agile processes that I'll talk about in a minute here. they're kind of um they're the just like your dev leads are they're the walking personification of every other person you want to hire after them right they're the kind of the great anchors of your teams or of the the dev leads they're the ones going around teaching other people good coding practices making sure there's compliance to coding standards things like that whatever they are these different social pressures and dynamics that are on the team the people that are already doing that when you at the day that you hired them keep your eye on them those are the ones they're the reps that are going to become your team leads um, this is a difficult role to hire from the outside Um, I think you kind of have to grow them internally, not unlike dev leads in most cases in most companies if you want to do it successfully. Um, So all the parallels are there, Um, and it's really this idea that they're both the player and the coach to the team, but they have no management responsibility for any of the logistical stuff. They're still mostly about closing their accounts and being that ideal rep, but they have the important role of running a few of the key processes sort of in the background, um, you know, day to day and week to week. Um, Just to expound on the separation here to kind of drive in this, and maybe it gets back to the question before, what I meant about cadence, um, the team leads in charge of cadence and morale are the track racing pit crew, making sure the cars are going around the tracks at a consistent speed, as fast as possible, on a consistent basis. And that's both the reward, the motivation, and um, sort of the spot treatments, like, hey, we need to change the tires, but we're going to keep the car moving kind of thing, where the sales management is the garage mechanics, engine tune-ups, suspension overhauls. Um, Really, the longer-term effects of maintaining it on a month, the month or you know, beyond an individual race, where the race being, in the case of sales, um, you're basically whatever your forecasting cycle is, um, and how that's sort of broken down, and, you know, the laps are your sprints, um, and the, you know, the race as a whole is sort of your your forecasting cycle. Tools and process. How do we pull all this together? Um, I've already touched on a lot of this um, in really quick kind of ways. Um, It's really about about running your sales team in a very agile-driven kind of way, Um, and it actually becomes very literal. Um, We actually use a uh, scrum sprint-based process um, for driving the sales team. Each one of these teams, the nine teams that we have now worldwide, each one of them has a team lead. Um, They run a a joint retrospective and stand-up meeting every week for us. We have a monthly forecasting cycle, and we run one-week sprints. So any monthly forecast is broken down into a weekly cycle that people are pacing off of. And um, one of the key elements of the team, and we talk about this on the blog actually quite a bit. Um, I could do we could do a whole other presentation on kind of how we're applying Scrum. The blog talks about it. We got a couple different posts to break all this down on the developingsales.com blog. Um, but the, the, one of the key elements you're really looking for is the same thing you're really looking for in your software development teams, which is you know what keeps the sales side of things from being doggy dog in competition between the salespeople competing and fighting over accounts and things like that. On the software teams, you don't quite run into, hey, that's the feature I really wanted. The natural competition isn't quite there, maybe because of the compensation systems and the motivations there, um, which is a whole other thing to talk about. But the bottom line is that the Scrum setup and the week-to-week retrospective and stand-ups is where all the best practices get shared, helping people diagnose each other's accounts or what things they're stuck on, and really the team collaboration aspect to driving to a common rolled-up forecast amongst everybody on the team is really where all the collaboration and teamwork element comes in. And it's really how you combat the sort of doggy dog nature that tends to kind of creep into sales a little bit. And it's obviously also a lot about the people that you hire. Again, no different than um, dev teams. Um, here's just a picture of uh, that's the New York office. We actually have all the deals on little post it note cards still in a very manual, uh, scrum uh, based kind of way scrum board. Um, let's see what else we got here. It's that's a good question, actually. Yeah, let's, let me see there. Yeah, that's actually the shower in the New York office right there. So somebody must have been running, and they're in the shower right now. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, there's the scrum board right there. All these different deals. If you look just at the rows really quick, might be better to see on this one. Oh yeah, I got it labeled. Um, each one of the different rows in a color is actually individual reps in their pipeline, and the scrum stages. Hopefully, you'll be familiar with to some extent. Uh, the backlog to do, in progress, and completed are the different areas for the deals. The backlog is like wish list customers that you want to have. The to-dos are stuff that's actually being worked on and sold um, right now in terms of being pitched um, in its various phases. And we don't put every deal on this. Um, These are typically the larger, more noteworthy deals that we're kind of talking about on an ongoing basis. Um, There's the in-progress stuff, which basically means we think it's going to close or there's some sort of verbal commit. And then there's the completed deals that we want to do the retrospective on um, and talk about something good or bad that happened in a particular thing. Um, And so this whole thing is being driven by the team leads. All the sales reps participate in there um, there's a lot of nuance and detail that goes into this I'm actually not the expert Dimitar who is here and maybe you want to flag it down flag him down if you can find him um, can really talk to this a lot about exactly how we do all this here and again it's on the <coughs> excuse me on the blog uh, we actually use a burn down. Um, this is one of those things that actually quite more literally works out better and it's sort of easier to do in um, revenue development um, or sales development than it is in software development just because it is inherently a more measurable thing that has its downsides Getting back to results versus performance But if you keep the performance stuff separable and think about results at least in terms of these burndowns here We have real-time live information system that tracks every single rep team office worldwide Whatever you want to do in any given month right up to the moment of any deal that's closed so people can see how they're burning down in the revenue um, this obviously drives 100 towards cadence this is the team lead's primary tool for maintaining cadence again it would be similar to the way you're doing burndowns for software development um, i think it's just actually easy um, you know we talk about even where they're pacing where is it going to be predicted at the end um, this is the sort of uh, 2d view that really gives you a sense of obviously if these aren't running parallel to each other in some way um, shape or nature or at least converging at some level or correcting inbound the team lead's going to be all over it hopefully the sales reps Rep or reps that are responsible for that deviating are going to be all over it And this is really the thing in terms of real-time information. That's the primary driver of day-to-day activity From a cadence perspective Um, Here's sort of the two-dimensional view so any one of these burn downs this being one we'll call this a team one for now um, Shows up here in a a two-dimensional form each one of these can be clicked on to get the actual uh, 2d burn down, but in the 1d form each one of the bars here. Um, Shows essentially progress to goal so we can very easily see these are on wall boards all over the world Plastered in each one of the offices Um, Everybody has it on their browser available I have one live outside my office, which has two effects one is that I see it the other people see that I see it, which is good Um, And it kind of have its downsides. You don't want it to be too doggy-dog But this is where the cadence and the performance and the the role of what the sales manager is doing on the longer-term basis complements what the team leads are doing on a day-to-day basis to really drive more consistent results so just to decode this a little bit here for you just to kind of get an idea of what's going on the red line is like when this was taken as a snapshot um, in this picture i guess june uh, 15th um, could it be that new yeah i guess it is yeah, two minutes ago on june 15th these are live updated um, here's the, the red bar basically is where they were during the month so about halfway through the month um, against 100 percent goal the solid bars indicate that this particular team is at 69 percent of goal even though they kind of only needed to be at 48 or 50 percent of goal so they're pacing ahead The shadow line shows actually the revenue pipeline forecast for where they're going to be at the end of the month, irrespective of where they currently are. So the blues are good. That means they're essentially head. The reds mean they're tracking behind. The shadow colors will tell you where we really think you're going to end up based on what we know about it now. Now, this is only ever as good as the information that goes into it. Um, And this gets into a whole other thing around psychology of CRMs and bad stuff that happens there. But it is a really effective tool that we use to kind of manage the team, um, again, on a day-to-day basis. Um, at the sales management, team lead level, and individual rep level even. You know, reps don't want to, teams don't want to be in red, um, offices don't want to be in red, Um, it all plays together nicely. There's a whole bunch of other stuff we built on top of Salesforce basically as a real-time system. Um, We'll be writing posts about more of this and probably open source the whole thing at some point, maybe just to fuck you, Salesforce. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so um, this is what you should be doing if you're out innovating. Um, In any case, uh, this is the system we have for that. circling back just before because we're running out of time here Um, the whole goal here is this idea of predictable revenue that's scaling all these systems coming together in the same way that you think about software development and how you're sort of stabilizing that process using that as a system to converge um, your sales teams on a predictable goal with a fixed set of trainable skills that are well understood relative to your market relative to your products relative to the sales processes all converging together a very precision predictable outcome Um, just a little bit of Family pictures, kind of things. Um, I needed to obfuscate this for a d- couple of different reasons, but um, we actually do a forecasting cycle that looks out at least a quarter in advance. We're more obviously planning the six to 12 month horizons on revenue prediction and forecasting based on our hiring plan, and so we have this model of activities that people are putting into the pipeline, um, what a reproducible rep looks like at a ste- steady state and their ramp up history. Um, this goes into a big uh, Python script, a lot of most of which I've written. To um, model what we're doing as we hire people onto the team. What this graph is showing here is looking, it's not always consistent. We run it at different times, a little bit batchy um, just based on when I have time or travel schedule or whatever. But typically it's looking, these are predicted numbers that are between three to six months in advance of when the revenue is actually going to occur. This shows the, the accuracy of the prediction of the revenue in um, that six to th- you know, three to six month window relative to the actual numbers so what you see on the graph here is that we're predicting revenue typically within five percent three to six months in advance um, usually guessing revenue in the simulations better than the sales team's forecast in any given month in other words if you took the team's actual forecast for one month the simulation from month two three four months ago is actually better than that roll-up number and we tend not to share that for a lot of good reasons but um <laughs> you don't want these self-fulfilling prophecy thing on things going on Um, But in any case, um, within 5%, 10% would be kind of a bad guess on any given month, you know, six months ago. So very happy with that line and how that continues to progress. It's going all the way back to uh, beginning of last year. Um, And just to show we're not like really sandbagging or anything, this is not like a stable revenue base in the sense of um, flat, steady revenue. This is built on a picture that looks like this. I actually cut this off at the beginning of this year just to further obfuscate data, I guess, but um, in any case, very happy with the growth. So, if you can just imagine predicting this line, I guess I should have plotted it um, within five percent typically, about three to six months in advance. That's what we've been able to do so far over the last four years of refining this um, on Stack Overflow Careers team. So, best practices: first phase with professional sales managers is in this phase three. This is the really the, again the first time where you're converting from the beginning stage where um, it's all about the vision and the vision selling into. These are actually reproducible sales skills, and you want people with sales skills coming onto the team and can teach sales skills coming onto the team. This idea that you're separating performance from results, and that each one of the reps is this autonomous, independent business that's running that you're uh, developing these reproducible skills in or hiring it onto the team. The real-time information is super critical, this idea of separating out the cadence of the team from the uh, skills development and the results from the performance. And then, in the end, it's autonomy and empowerment is the name of the game. Um, Two other quick things I threw in there. I guess I already alluded to CRM systems suck. You've heard that from me three times. Um, I really do think there's a lot of innovation that can happen in this to get into the psychology or maybe the anthropology behind how salespeople actually work. None of these tools are really doing that, in my opinion. Um, They're basically just glorified contact managers and calendaring applications. Um, They really know nothing about what salespeople really do or how they should be thinking about their problem. Um, Maybe there's a good overlap in the software development tools now that I think about it. I have to go look at that a little bit. Um, The other thing is – and this was one that I – Uh, Learned uh, relatively quickly from some really good advice from some other very experienced people Which is the way to think about your compensation systems? This is one of the other pitfalls I guess running out of time here that um, we'd love to cover more in the phase three But it's using the compensation system to try to manage people's behavior. That's an absolute mistake It's no different than trying to incent your software developers with bonuses and things like that. Hopefully you're not doing that Um, in terms of how you get the consistency and cadence out of the team and I'm really intrigued by the sort of flat compensation or no commission based things in sales um, we haven't gone so far as to do that. Um, we do have a you know, traditional uh, uh, commission-based system of some sense, but it's extremely simple. And it's never being used as a management tool. It just needs to get out of the way so that when people are doing the right things, they're not paid unfairly, essentially.
0: If you are enjoying the podcast and would like to receive new BOSS talks and articles direct to your inbox, why not sign up for the BOSS newsletter? A free, regular email jam-packed with boss goodness. Sign up now at businessofsoftware.org slash updates. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.